The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let's listen together for God's word as it echoes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, beginning with the first verse. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your home today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of, of one who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, Half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today we're going to talk about Zacchaeus, the curious fellow who welcomed Jesus home for dinner. But first we need to prepare. Before engaging Zacchaeus, we're going to take a trip through anthropology, psychology, and contemporary politics. In order to get a handle on who Zacchaeus really is, we first need to talk about disgust. Why disgust? Well, because disgust explains everything. At least that's what Molly Young claims in a fascinating feature article that appeared back in December in the New York Times Magazine. Disgust explains everything. According to psychologists, humans have six basic emotions. Anger, surprise, fear, joy, sadness, and disgust. Out of this constellation of feels, disgust is said to be the least studied and most misunderstood emotion. 
and at the same time, disgust is exceedingly common. We experience disgust every day. Disgust occurs when we clean the hair and other slimy stuff from our shower drain. Disgust occurs when our face scrunches up on catching the scent of urine in a subway station. Disgust occurs when yuck escapes our lips on finding an old container of food in the back of the fridge that's growing fuzz. Disgust is universal. The things that trigger disgust, not so much. We don't all find the same things revolting. The worlds that we inhabit influence our disgust responses. In his journal from 1832, anthropologist Charles Darwin describes eating meat from a can while on an expedition to Tierra del Fuego. During the meal, one of the locals walked up to Darwin with concern on his face. The man reached out and, and, and poked the gelatinous ham on the biologist's plate and wrinkled his nose, obviously disgusted. Darwin, in turn, also felt disgust. After all, someone with unwashed hands had just poked his food. The things that gross us out vary. And this makes disgust a rich subject for comedians. Almost every episode, I was thinking about this this past week, almost every single episode of Seinfeld revolves around the possibility that somebody or something might be disgusting. Take Jerry's monologue from this 1995 episode. Now I was thinking the other day about hair and that the weird thing about it is that people will touch each other's hair. You'll actually kiss another human being right on the head. But if one of those hairs should somehow get out of its skull and go off on its own, it is now the vilest, most disgusting thing you can encounter. The same hair, people freak out. There was a hair in my egg salad. Disgust is funny, it's awkward, it's gross. And it has also played a historically important role in protecting humans from dangerous stuff. Jonathan Haidt, our first Gatto lecture, someone who has addressed us right in this sanctuary, spent a good bit of his early scholarly career studying disgust. Together with his mentor, Paul Rosen, Haidt argues that disgust is something that millennia of evolution has hardwired into humans. We are, all of us, shaped for disgust. Like a watchdog, disgust stands on alert in our heads, ready to raise its hackles and bark at potential harm. Why do we recoil from moldy food? 
Why does the sight of worms in an old flour sack make people queasy? Why do we turn away from a war photo showing a body decaying in a field? In each of these cases, we flinch because deep in our brain, a well-honed instinct is waving a flag. Look out! You are face to face with a potential contaminant with the possibility of illness and disease. Now here's the tricky thing. Our minds recoil from all sorts of stuff. We don't draw the line at biological contaminants. Over time, a long, long time, disgust has experienced mission creep. It's no longer satisfied safeguarding us from rotten meat and raw sewage. It wants to protect our souls too. And this, in this, our culture, or I really should say cultures, plural, is constantly drawing lines for us, seeking to define what is and is not disgusting. You know this. Our sense of disgust is not confined to whether food is moldy or decaying. It extends to what we consider to be food. Certain cultures and religions forbid the consumption of meat that comes from pigs or cows or shellfish or dogs. Some religious groups believe that eating meat of any sort is taboo. And then, of course, there are cultures in human history that have embraced cannibalism. All of this is to say that, that down through the millennia, humanity's sense of what is disgusting has become somewhat plastic. It is stretched beyond its original role, holding us back from the biologically risky to take part in policing the boundaries of moral issues. Disgust can be employed in societal debates about who people ought to befriend, date, or walk alongside in public holding hands. Disgust is frequently evoked throughout the world to set norms for sexual behavior. Disgust has also been used to put up barriers between ethnicities, to criticize certain body types, to set cultural standards for dress, and even to debate the appropriate length of men and women's hair. Ask Will Smith and Chris Rock about that. Disgust plays a role in our political discourse, too. Today's politicians and pundits are constantly expressing disgust about a wide variety of hot-button topics. Kneeling during the national anthem is Disgusting. American gun culture is disgusting. Welfare cheats are disgusting. Police brutality is disgusting. Immigrants, especially those from hellhole countries, are disgusting. Racism in every form is disgusting. 
I, I bet everyone in this room has items they would like to la add to this list. And it makes me wonder, is the world really, really making us so very nauseous? Or is something else going on? We've talked a lot in this country in recent years about the politics of fear. Fear, one of those six core emotions, works as a political tool. It's not the healthiest way to garner votes, but fear clearly motivates people. Uh, lately, though, I've begun to wonder if we're entering into a new political phase. Fear, <laughs> that's old school. Today's political rhetoric goes straight for our stomach. It aims to sicken us. Consider, if you will, recent knockdown, drag out confirmation fights over those nominated to be justices for the Supreme Court. Now, before we go there, I know I'm making some of you nervous already, I want to acknowledge something. It is absolutely fine to have an opinion about a justice based on his or her overall judicial competence, the history of their previous decisions, and the sort of precedence to which they appeal when processing complicated legal matters. It's 100% acceptable to be in favor or not in favor of appointments to the highest court in the land based on your politics. What is not okay is to use these political differences as a self-righteous excuse for the ugliness that now permeates these constitutionally mandated exams. And for once, let's not, like toddlers, offer excuses for this abysmal behavior by accusing the other side of having started it. Those accusing Kentanji Brown Jackson of being soft on child pornography knew what they were doing. They wanted to portray her as disgusting. Those who threw shade on Amy Coney Barrett for being part of a small religious community in which someone was once accused of sexual abuse knew what they were doing too. They wanted to portray her as disgusting. Why are today's senators going beyond political and legal differences to throw stink on our future justices? The obvious answer is probably the right one, because it works. It firms up our political divisions. How? Well, disgust makes us recoil. And it also makes us pay attention. It activates us in a strange way. You've seen this before. In a strange way, humans like to share their sense of being disgusted with each other. This cheese smells disgusting. Here, take a whiff. <laughs> All this is to say the media and we who consume the media's inflammatory products shoulder part of the blame. We gravitate like, like doomed moths toward the scent of scandal. The nastier, the better. 
Sure, we disagree with this person politically, but now we've come to see that things are far worse than we imagined. This person is vile. They're disgusting. Here, take a whiff. Why does QAnon deceitfully suggest that American politicians have been running a child prostitution ring out of a pizza place in Washington, D.C.? Why did Vladimir Putin falsely declare that Ukraine is being run by Nazis, comparing them to one of the most amoral regimes in human history? Was Putin trying to stir up fear against this much smaller neighboring nation, or was Russia's leader playing a different card altogether? I'm gonna tell you something that's gonna make your stomach churn, Ukraine, is controlled by Nazis. This, this creeping rot has got to be stopped. Don't you agree? None of this, of course, is new. According to the good book, many citizens of the ancient world thought themselves to be experts on the subject of disgust. The Gospel of Luke makes it clear that people of Jesus' time had a long list of those who were deemed physically, morally, spiritually offensive. On that list were, were shepherds, lepers, adulterers, immigrants, people of other faiths, the demon-possessed, the lame, in his travels, Jesus encounters all sorts of souls who'd been labeled disgusting. Instead of recoiling, though, Christ flips the conversation upside down by doing something equally offensive. Everywhere he went, Jesus sought out people on society's margins. He could always be found hanging out with those sort of folk. He, he ate with sinners. He, he shared pita bread with prostitutes. He touched the brows of, of the untouchable. Doesn't this bother you? People kept asking the disciples in the Gospel of Luke. Doesn't this bother you? Your, your teacher sits at picnic tables with traitors, criminals, and other folk who are just so obviously unclean. He, he washes his hands alongside them. He, he pours cups of wine out for them. This behavior, it makes me sick. In today's passage, the locals are scandalized watching Jesus invite himself over to Zacchaeus' house for supper. Luke describes it this way. All who saw it began to grumble. Come on, Jesus. This guy's ethical standards are as diminished as, as his stature. He's a small man with a small heart. He's a tax collector. He, he collects, well, you might as well say extorts money from us to support a foreign government. He's responsible for seeing that the people of Jericho pay for the privilege of being occupied by Rome. Guys like this are the most unprincipled traitors, the most unscrupulous cheats. And then to make matters worse, Luke describes Zacchaeus as the chief tax collector. Don't you get it? 
Jesus, he's the big cheese, a rich guy, a Roman tool. You want to blame someone for all the pain and misery in this city? Blame Zacchaeus. What a disgusting excuse for a man. And yet, this is not, evidently, what Jesus sees. Walking down the avenue, Jesus stops, he looks up, he spots the tax collector on a branch. Have our Lord's eyes come to rest on a bad man? Does he see perched up in that sycamore, a vulture hunting for his next rotten meal? Evidently not. The Japanese artist who painted today's bulletin cover Soichi Watanabe captures all of this tension in a brilliant manner. When the angular crowd looks at Zacchaeus, they, they see power and wealth and corruption. But this is not what Jesus sees. He looks beyond all of these trappings to find, surprise, surprise, a pure heart, a child of the covenant. Zacchaeus, says Jesus, Blessing the man, your testimony is true. You do provide for those in need. You're not disgusting. You too are a son of Abraham. You live up to your name, Zacchaeus, which means, by the way, pure and innocent. What are we to make of this story? Two things. Observation number one. Our Lord is not a politician peddling a simple formula for categorizing people. He doesn't print poor is good, rich is bad on flashcards, nor does he say, like some prosperity gospel preachers, poor is bad, rich is good. Instead, Jesus conveys something closer to the sentiments made famous by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We are to judge people not by appearances or quick labels or convenient stereotypes. We are to judge people by the content of their character. Observation number two. At the end of today's passage, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Who is lost in this story? I submit to you that Zacchaeus isn't lost. He's lonely. He's got to be one solitary dude. He's, he's despised, maligned by his neighbors, but he's not lost in this story I think it's pretty clear it's the crowds who are lost. And we know this kind of lost. In recent years, we've watched more than our fair share of political rallies where crowds look frightened, angry, and downright disgusted with America. Lost. This is what happens when the rhetoric of division hooks our hearts when we're encouraged to see our neighbors as threats to our livelihood and our dignity, we lose our way. 
when politicians single out subsets of society telling us that, that they, they, the disgusting they, are authors, are the authors of all our problems, we lose our way when we blame others for all that's wrong with our lives, we lose our way. And when we're lost, we're not at our best. We follow vague promises. We resist taking on the most difficult challenges. When we're lost and frightened, we find it very hard to talk about the sacrifices, God forbid, the necessary sacrifices we must make to get back on track. The crowd in Jericho was lost like that. They'd identified the people that were responsible for the problems in their city. They, they knew who the sinners were. They knew who Zacchaeus was. They expected the visiting prophet to agree. But clearly, they hadn't been paying attention. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't go in for fear-mongering. He doesn't fan the flames of people's anger or label whole segments of society disgusting. He sups with the poorest of the poor. He binds the wounds up of those others have deemed untouchable. And then he turns around and declares, I'm going to camp out at the home of a wealthy guy that no one likes. What is Christ doing? I think he's turning things upside down. At the very least, he's elbowing us in the side. <laughs> do, do you recognize anybody in the pinched faces in Jericho? Have you seen that look before on TV, in the mirror? I came to seek and save the lost, says Jesus. I came to save you, all of you, from division from making outcasts out of each other, from toxic political rhetoric that shackles the heart. I came to get you to stop shouting, to sit down, to break bread, to share a sandwich, and to find brothers and sisters in places where you never imagined God's children might dwell. After all, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons and daughters, his father Abraham and I am one of them and you are too so let's all praise the Lord go from this place my friends willing to resist the powers of hate and to marvel at all that God would have us embrace have courage in this season Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen.